0: But the sermon is actually not drawn from the Old Testament reading. The sermon is drawn from the second reading, which in this particular case is also Old Testament. But it's really not long enough to call it a reading. In this case, it's one verse. If somebody asks me to preach on a biblical passage... I will almost always, now this is not a promise, but I will almost always do that. Uh, It means that there is spiritual interest there. Somebody wants to know a question, and I mean, I'm literally called as a biblical teacher, that's what I do. And uh, on the more practical side, it means that when I give my sermon, I know that at least one person out there is listening, because I don't always have that, so... Um, a question has arisen in the, the women's Bible study concerning Proverbs chapter 26 and verse 10. In the New King James, that verse reads as follows. The great God who formed everything gives the fool his hire and the transgressor his wages. On the surface that would not seem to be that hard to either explicate or to find application from. The great God, who is the creator of everything, gives to the fool and the transgressor what they deserve. God is righteous. The fool and the transgressor will ultimately suffer his wrath. Case closed, right? Older translations run along these lines. The King James reads the great God that formed all things both rewardeth the fool and rewardeth the transgressors. Same idea. And the Geneva Bible, the excellent, and you notice it's capitalized, that formed all things both rewardeth the fool and rewardeth the transgressors. So, again, very straightforward. God is creator. That's the first part of the line. The second part is those bad guys get what they deserve. But let's look at a few more modern translations. Uh, Let's look at the New International Version. Like an archer who wounds at random is a proverb in the mouth of a fool. So, same verse, that's not what we read. Now, again, it's fairly easy to Uh, explicates if you have an archer who's shooting at random he's a danger to himself and others and if a fool has a proverb which is actually a statement of wisdom uh, he knows enough just to be dangerous so it makes sense but it's very different than what we read let's look at the um, the nasty like an archer who wounds everyone So is he who hires a fool or who hires those who pass by. So not the same as the NIV, and we now have the introduction of uh, hiring people. Somebody is going to hire someone and really shouldn't hire just anyone who comes around, and especially a fool. Or one more, let's look at the New English Translation. Like an archer who wounds at random, so is he who hires a fool or who hires any passerby. So it follows the same idea as the New American Standard Bible. Uh, You have three very different presentations of a proverb, all of them listed under Proverbs chapter 26, verse 10. Uh, It gets even more interesting when you compare a literal reading of the Hebrew to a literal reading of the Septuagint, which is the oldest translation of the Hebrew Bible into Greek. The Green's literal translation, which is often used in interlinear Bibles because of how literal it is, uh, it reads like this. Great is the former of all things, but he who hires a fool is like one who hires those passing by. So, you've got the idea of hiring again, Uh, you've got the fool, the proverb is missing, but again, we have God. Great is the former of all things. Not as in, he's the former and we have something new, but he is the creator. Great is the former, it's capitalized, of all things, but you don't hire a fool or a passerby. The uh, The Septuagint, which is 1,200 years older than the Masoretic Hebrew, which we base our Hebrew Bibles off of, uh, here is a literal translation of it. Uh, All flesh of men without discernment grievously suffers many things. So uh, we have the fool, And very similar to the New King James, the King James, the fool suffers, and you assume God is the one who makes him suffer, but there is no reference to God, uh, the, the former, the creator, and there's no reference to an archer. So why are we seeing such diversity in the translation of this one verse? What is going on there? About... Two months ago, I picked up the New English Translation. It's not a great translation of the Bible by any means. I'm not advising you to get one. Uh, Of all the Bible translations out there, it's one of them. But one thing that it does have, at least in the one I have, is the translators put all their study notes about the text right into the footnotes. And so, while I almost always disagree with them about how they translated things, it's fascinating to look at what they were thinking when they were making their translation. And on this verse, they have a fairly big note. It says, the Hebrew quote, who wounds everyone. This is the rendering given by the NASB, the New Revised Standard Version, and the NIV." It is the only one that makes sense out of a verse that most commentators consider hopelessly corrupt. That is not to say it is the correct rendering, which is good because I don't think it is. And they admit that. This is not to say it is the correct rendering, only that it makes sense as a required negative statement in a proverb. The first line and the first word can mean either an archer, a master, or much, And the verb can mean to wound or to bring forth. The possibilities are a master performs or produces all, a master injures all, an archer wounds all or much produces all. The line probably should be stating something negative, they say. Uh, So the idea of an archer injuring or wounding someone at random is preferable, an undisciplined hiring will have the same effect as an archer shooting at anything. Well, there are the notes, and they kind of put before us what our options are. And I'm not a Hebrew scholar. I get by. I'm not uneducated. I do know how to look at Hebrew and how to use tools. Um, the two lines really, if to my eyes, to to your pastor's eyes, uh, are best represented in the green translation, which I will read again, great is the former of all things, but he who hires a fool is like one who hires those passing by. If you ask me to enter into how to translate this verse, I would say that's what it's really saying. The former of all things, which is God, he's the creator. He is great, he is above all, but you really shouldn't hire a fool or a passerby. And if you hire a fool, it's like hiring a passerby. When you break down the notes in the net and you ask the translators, why do you prefer the archer? They say, well, it has to be something negative, it can't be something positive. Well, why? Why? Well, because the something positive is God the creator, and we don't actually see how that relates to the second part. Great is God the creator. He's wonderful. He's high. He's wonderful. Oh, and don't hire a fool and a passerby. Uh, Proverbs are supposed to correlate, and we don't see how that correlates. Well, I think the problem here is theology on the part of the translators not text but to understand that let's look at the two parts of the proverb and let's look at the second part first don't hire somebody just off the street you don't know them you you just met them the name they gave you might even not be their right name Um, don't hire a stranger why not well, it seems fairly obvious. They may be a danger. They could be a danger to you or to your family in a lot of ways. They could be thieves. They could be predators. They could be uh, wanting to abuse you. You don't know. They're just people passing by. Um, they may be incompetent. I, I don't know if any of you out there who have hiring powers have ever hired somebody that looked like this is a great guy and your uh, first impression turned out to be horribly wrong, and they were just absolutely terrible. But I am told that that does happen. Uh, How are you going to know? How are you going to know who this guy is if he's just off the street? He may be incompetent. Um, He may put a black mark on your good name. Just recently, I bought a refrigerator from a company that generally has a good name, but their delivery guy was as rude and abusive to me as I have ever had any employee of a company be. Uh, He left me with a refrigerator not plugged up. He left it in my living room with my house torn up and basically told me to go to blazes. Well, I thought about writing a terrible review for this company and just scorching their earth, but I've never actually done that to anyone, so I held off. I didn't do that. And later on, after I had our deacons come and install my refrigerator, because I've known that, uh, I had a little bit more business with this company. And uh, when I went in to them, I said, you know, I thought about lighting you up. I thought about absolutely writing you a negative review. I didn't do it. But here's what your employee did, and I told him, And the guy said, yeah, you know, you weren't the only guy he did that to, and he doesn't work here now. But he gave us a black eye. He he really gave us a bad reputation. We fired him, but not before the damage was done. Uh, he made us look really bad. So, that's what you get when you hire somebody just kind of passing by off the street. Um, you just don't know. You don't know what they're going to be like. As a reader of fantasy, I've, I've never hid, I'm a nerd. Um, one of the tropes in fantasy novels is all the leading characters are in a tavern drinking and they're approached by a mysterious stranger who has a job for them to do that will end up saving the world. Well, think about that for a second. You have something so important that the world is depending upon it, so you really have to go down to the tavern and hire a bunch of drunks you don't know. Now, uh, we do kind of in America, that's how we do our he and she We We actually, most Americans go to a pub and they meet strangers while they're drinking, and that's the foundation for their dating life. But generally, we don't do that, because who does that? Who hires a drunk you don't know for an important job? Well, that is what the proverb is saying you really shouldn't do. You should hire somebody you know, somebody whose character is clear to you. You know, if not, they might end up being a fool, and you wouldn't want to hire a fool, would you? Well, what if you actually knew them to be a fool? What if the person was an out-and-out fool, and you hired them anyway? What would happen to you? Now... To move on to this point, we kind of have to understand what a fool is. If somebody in common parlance looks you in the eye and says, you're a fool, they're probably not using the term the way the Bible does. Because in English, the way we throw it around, it means you're a moron. Well, there's a word for that in scripture, but it's not fool. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus uh, talks about this directly. It's in Matthew chapter 25 and verse uh, 21 and 22. Here we read this. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. So this is the commandment, thou shall not kill. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raqqa, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. Uh, the term Raqqa is an Arabic term which literally corresponds to the way we in English use the word fool if somebody comes up and says, you're a rakah, uh, they're saying, your elevator doesn't go to the top floor. You're three ingredients short of a taco. I had a, a guy I knew in Bible college who was from a Congregationalist denomination, and their denomination didn't have a presbytery like we don't, and since there was no council, he didn't feel any danger calling us all rakahs, so he wandered around the men's uh, dormitory calling us Rakak and even a council be answer, answerable to. But that's a different word than fool. If you are a fool, the Bible says this is true of you. Psalm 14 is about the fool and it reads like this. The fool has said in his heart there is no God. They are corrupt. They have, because, they have done abominable works. There is none who does good. Now the psalm goes on to say, "Before God, everyone who is an Adam is a fool." You know, so if you have an unconverted person, they are a fool. Um, the Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. They have all to turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is not one who does good. No, not one. So every single human being, still in Adam, not in Christ, they are a fool, at least to some degree. And from God's perspective, uh, the degree matters not much at all. You know, when God looks at men, the the, the greatest sinner among men is, is not... Significantly darker than the best do-gooder who's unconverted. So, uh, who's a fool? A fool is someone who says in their heart, there is no God and lives accordingly. It is someone who is a rebel to God in full. He is living against the will of God. He is actively doing it. He knows he is a rebel to God and that is how he is going to live. Um... What happens if you hire a fool? Well, we actually saw that not that long ago. The year is 2006, and the evangelical world is celebrating because, for once, they think they have produced a Hollywood-quality movie. You know... Christian movies are not really considered that great by most of the world. And as much as I would like to argue against that, most of them really aren't. They're not that good. There's one or two that are pretty good. but Well, it's 2006, and the Evangelical Church thinks it has one. It is a a sequel to um, Through the Gates of Splendor, it's about the missionaries in 1956 who were killed, bringing the gospel to a very hostile tribe of natives in the Amazon rainforest. Um, the, the, the death of Jim Elliot and his companions was a major moment in missions in the 20th century, and ultimately the gospel broke into that tribe and you ended up with a, a church among them, converted people. Well, this movie was going to be about that. It was called The End of the Sphere. And although they made certain concessions to Hollywood, like never in the movie is the name Jesus used once. It, it isn't. If you watch me, go back and watch it again. The name of Jesus is they used. They do use the title Son of God, and that comes out a couple times. But they never used Jesus' name. But even though they've made some concessions, they think they've got this great movie that's gospel-centered. Uh, but there's a fly in the ointment. They hired a man to be the lead character, both to be Nick Saint and to be his father. His name was Chad Allen. And evangelicals loved Chad Adam. He had been on a TV show that we liked. It was called Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman. And everybody thought he would be perfect for the part, and he kind of was. The only problem was, he was a gay rights activist. And he himself was gay. And the movie producers thought, well, you know, what the hey, it's just acting. Most actors aren't their part, so let's hire this man. He does fine as an actor, but he immediately turned it around into a victory for the LGBTQ, TBD, XYZ folk. Uh, He hit every talk show that he could and talked about how Christians were beginning to turn away from their morality. They were beginning to, to put aside the commandments of God. We were becoming less sticklers. After all, they hired me for their evangelical movie. And what happened is a movie that wasn't that bad ended up being an absolute disaster for the Christian church as wicked people may pay while the sun shined because they hired a fool. That's what this verse is about. If you hire somebody just off the street, the odds are they're going to blow your business up somehow. They're going to be a thief, they're going to be, be a danger, they're, gonna, they're going to to make you look bad. If you hire a fool, you're guaranteed those things are going to happen. Well, they did. They happened in this particular case. And the Apostle Paul is talking about this in the New Testament. When you go to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning at verse 11 and going into chapter 7, verse 2. There, the apostle is remonstrating with the church at Corinth. The church at Corinth has decided it doesn't really like the apostles anymore. They have had their affection for them poisoned. And Paul turns to that and he says, O Corinthians, we have spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. Now, in return for the same, I speak as to children, you also be open. So, in other words, turn back your warm affections to us, and then the apostle begins to talk about what's happening to make them not be affectionate towards the apostles. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness, and what communion has light with darkness, and what accord has Christ with Belial, for what part has a believer with an unbeliever, and what agreement has the temple of God with idols, for you are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Open your hearts to us, the apostle returns to that theme, Open your hearts to us, we have wronged no one, we have corrupted no one, we have cheated no one. So in context, what the apostle is saying is, you are being pulled away from the apostolic church, from the ministry of the apostles of Jesus Christ, you are being pulled into darkness because you have fellowship with evil people. What fellowship does a believer have with an unbeliever? What fellowship does Christ have with Belial? The answer is none. You are called to be a holy people and Psalm 14 tells us everyone who is in Adam is to some degree a fool. They are a rebel against God. They have said in their heart there is no God and they live accordingly. Paul would say why would you yoke yourself with such a person? Now Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 6 gets trotted out whenever a believer wants to date an unbeliever. We, we do that. It's, it's just like a, a, a reflex. Uh, and it's right to do because there's no yoking like getting married. And if you are a believer and you marry an unbeliever, you are destroying your life. There is no exception to that. You won't be happy no matter what you tell me. Listen to me now, you won't be happy, you are headed for disaster, it is absolutely right to bring this passage up because you're yoking the temple of God to idols. But that is not the only context of this passage. The context of this passage is pretty much every context. What true fellowship, what uniting, what lodging of allegiance Should we have, if we are light and they are darkness, if we are believers, they are unbelievers, will we unite the temple of God to Belial in any context? Can you think of a context, one, where God would say, yeah, that's okay, yeah, you go ahead and do that. Well, the answer is no. We are called to holiness. So the verse talks about hiring, you shouldn't hire a fool. The fool will blow up your house. And you're called to holiness. You're not supposed to be linked to fools. But how does that apply to the first part of the verse? Again, I'm not a, I'm not a, a master language scholar, but I get by. And when I look at the verse, the King James, the New King James, the Geneva... They all refer to God as the creator. That's how they translate it. And in my humble opinion, they're right. That's what the verse is talking about. Great is the maker, the shaper, the molder, the creator of all things. Well, how does that relate to don't hire a fool? Well, let us consider for a moment. Is there any... Verses in scripture that suggests that because God is holy, you should be holy. Are there any verses in scripture that suggest God's nature is righteous and God wants you to be like God? Painting broadly, you know, whatever God is like, you really ought to model because God is good, right? Well, God is a lot of things. But one of the things that he is very prominently in Scripture is creator. There was nothing. There was no natural law. There was no world. There was nothing upon nothing upon nothing. And God said, let there be light, and there is light. God said, let land form out of the water, etc., etc. The first thing we see God doing is Creating, producing, developing. That's who God is. He's the creator. I thought about reading this passage, but the truth is, uh, you already know it. And it shows up in the Gospels more times than one, and it seems to be our Lord's favorite story. Our Lord taught by parables, and one of the parables he loved to teach was. The Parable of the Talents. If you look at the Gospels, it looks like he teaches it more than one time, and he even teaches it slightly in different ways. There's one point where he talks about people being assigned cities to govern. But this is a a sermon that the Lord gave many times. He talked about a master giving to his servants talents, and talents, the word doesn't work in the Bible the way it works in our language. Uh, The word talent is a coin. It's it's a a unit of money. A master gives to his servants money, and he says, I'll be back in a while. What does the master want the servants to do in the parable of the talents? Anybody remember? I gave you ten talents, so when I come back, I want you to have turned them into twenty talents. I gave you five talents, I want you to turn them into ten. I only gave you two, but I only expect you to turn them into four. You know, There is running through all those parables of our Lord an understanding that the Master has given to His servants that the servants would create, produce, they would prosper... The reason why we use the word talent the way we do today is because the symbolism of the, the the parable refers to everything God gives. It's not just money. It's not just possessions. It's abilities and qualities and opportunities. Uh, God gives all those to us, but God expects us to produce, to build, to create. That's something God wants. And um, if you don't believe me, let me read for you a bunch of people who are wildly health, wealth, and prosperity. They're totally into the prosperity gospel. The Westminster Divines. (laughs) We are looking at questions 73 through 75 of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Which is the Eighth Commandment? The Eighth Commandment is, Thou shalt not steal. What is required in the Eighth Commandment? The Eighth Commandment requireth the lawful procuring and furthering the wealth and outward estate of ourselves and others. Now, these aren't flaming Pentecostals. These are Puritan divines, and they're working with the Ten Commandments. You know, this is not mystic stuff. And they turn to the commandment that you should not steal, and they say the positive outwork of that is that God requires of you the lawful procuring and furthering of the wealth and outer estate of yourself and others. In other words, there is a moral commandment to build, to prosper, to grow. Uh, in certain theological uh, corners of the Christian church, this is called the dominion mandate. And it's true. God gives to you so that you will build. You have one talent, he wants you to turn it into two. If you have 20, he wants you to turn it into 40. Um, the, the catechism goes on to say the opposite is true. Theft is when you don't do that. It's the, the striking at the very commandment of God when you don't produce, you don't build, you don't grow. So when Solomon begins his proverb, great is the master creator of all things, and then he turns to those who would hire, there is an intricate, intimate connection. Who does the hiring. Well, somebody owns a business, right? Why do they hire? Well, they hire because owning a business, they want to produce, they want to grow, they want to develop something. That's the goal. And as we have already seen, the Ten Commandments in Jesus tell us that growing, developing, and prospering is literally a moral command from God. So when a man who runs a business hires someone, this is not a non-religious moment. This is very much a religious moment. He is called by God to produce the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of God has physical manifestation. Uh, we were talking in Bible study this morning about our diaconal ministry. Um, we help the poor a lot, to put it bluntly. You know, Poor people come looking for stuff, and they're poor, and Jesus says to meet their needs, and so we do do that. If we don't have anything to meet their needs with, we can't do that. I mean, that's just the long and short of it. Jesus can turn two loaves and five fish, or two five fish and two loaves. or He can turn whatever into whatever, but we can't do that. We have to actually have it to be able to give it to them. There is a moral imperative to be able to do good, right? So that's what this proverb is about. You are commanded by God to be able to do good, to be able to do the kingdom of God. You are to build, to prosper, to grow, to take dominion. You are to do that. You are in the image of God when you do that. Great is the former and maker of all things. He he has created and shaped and molded everything, and you who are making and molding and shaping things, you're like God, and you're living according to the mandate. So don't hire a fool. See, that's that's the stinger here. The stinger is God calls you to build the kingdom of God. Obey second. Obey Second Corinthians chapter six. Don't have Christ have fellowship with Belial. Don't have light, have fellowship with darkness. This never turns out well. In the conquest of Canaan, in the book of Joshua, I believe it is chapter 9, you effectively have the people of God hire a fool, although it happens in this way. As you know, when God's people are called to conquer the land, they're told, have no fellowship with the people of the land. They will be a seduction to you. They will seduce you to worship other gods. Drive them out. Uh, Get rid of their influence. Well, there's a group called um, the the Gibeonites who would rather not be exterminated. And they come up with a way to trick the people of God, and we take up the story in verse 1. And it came to pass when all the kings who were on this side of the Jordan, in the hills and in the lowland and in all the coasts of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Parasite, the Hivite, the Jebusite, heard about it that they gathered together to fight with Joshua and Israel with one accord. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and I, They worked craftily and went and pretended to be ambassadors. They took old sacks on their donkeys, old wineskins torn and mended, old and patched sandals on their feet, and old garments on themselves, and all the bread of their provision was dry and moldy. And they went to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a far country. Now, therefore, make a covenant with us. So, Joshua doesn't know these men from Adam. They are effectively passers-by. They have made themselves look like something they have not, they're not. And Joshua is expected to make a decision at this moment to enter into a covenant with them. And he does. Then the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you dwell among us, so how can we make a covenant with you? But they said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you, and where do you come from? So they said to him, From a very far country your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard of his fame in all that he did in Egypt, in all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon king of Heshbon, and to Og king of Bashan. Who was Ashtaroth? Therefore, our elders and all the inhabitants of our country spoke to us, saying, Take provisions with you for the journey and go and meet them, and say to them, We are your servants. Now, therefore, make a covenant with us. This bread of ours we took hot for our provision from our houses on the day we departed to come to you, but now look, it is dry and moldy. And these wineskins, which were filled with new wine, And see, they are torn, and these are garments, and our sandals have become old because of the very long journey. Then the men of Israel took some of their provisions, but they did not ask counsel of the Lord. That's kind of the key statement here. Um, So Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live, and the rulers of the congregation swore to them. And it happened at the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, that they heard that they were neighbors who dwelt near them. Then the children of Israel journeyed and came to the cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Cherith, Beeroth, and Kiriath-Jerim. But the children of Israel did not attack them, because the rulers of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel. And all the congregation complained against their rulers. But at this point, there's nothing they can do about it. Joshua has hired a passerby. He has been fooled. And he has brought fools into the midst of Israel. And what does the book of Judges tell us happened? Everything God said about the people of the land will be a snare to you, they will bring idolatry to you, they will bring you into their evil that happens. And the Gibeonites are ground zero for it. They have pulled off a coup. They have gotten Joshua to hire a fool. And the the holiness of Israel is poisoned. Because you don't hire a fool. Years ago I had a friend named Barry. Barry was a wonder to me. He was an ordained minister in the Presbyterian Church USA which is the fallen denomination. It's, it's the mainline, truly wicked denomination. He was ordained in their body, and he three times was pastor of a church and talked the church into leaving the PCUSA for something better, and they never threw him out. They never took his ordination away. I have no idea how he pulled that off, but more power to him. I, I loved him. But in one of those churches... Barry was looking for somebody to come on the elder board, and the people of the church said, there, there is somebody who would make a great elder for this church. His name is Dr. Cleef, and Dr. Cleef is a, a pillar of the community. Uh, everybody knows him. He's a rich man. He's used to making decisions. He would be a great elder for this church. The only problem Barry found out was twofold. One, he wasn't in the church... And number two, he didn't believe in the Trinity. But otherwise, he'd make a great elder. And so Barry said, no, we're not going to do that. And the people rose up. They said, he's a pillar of the community. If we had the town doctor as an elder, well, we'd be sitting pretty. We would be admired. I mean, we want these men to be our leaders, right? Barry said, no, we don't. That's hiring a fool. That is bringing a fool into Israel. That is bringing a fool into what God has given us to build. We are building the kingdom of God, and you're asking the Gibeonites to come build it with us. We're not going to do that. This very moment, I know of a church not far from us with a name of being evangelical, and I don't dispute it. Um but they've hired an unbelieving music minister who effectively lives with his Hindu girlfriend. Uh, He's been music minister there for quite some time, and at this point, there's no way the church doesn't know about it, but he's a great music minister. He is very talented. He knows how to tickle them keys when it comes to the the computer uh, keyboard. So they hire him because of his talent, right? Right? Christian church supposed to do that? Great is the God who creates. And you are to follow Him. You are to create right behind Him. You are a son of God. You are to live like Him. And the kingdom of God has been given to you to build. Don't hire a fool. Don't link hands with somebody who when you bring them in, they'll be like the lead actor on End of the Spear who will tear everything to pieces Because that's what fools do. A fool says in his heart, there is no God. If you bring a fool into your warm embrace, if you make him your cherished companion, you are inviting a fool to rip you to pieces and he'll do it. That is what this proverb is about. Ultimately, it's about holiness. God has given us to be his apprentice in his workstation. God is the master carpenter, and he has invited his children into the shop to build side by side with him. God wants us to be faithful, not what the world calls relevant. When you start wanting to be relevant, you start linking arms with fools. And that sets fire to the workroom. That burns down the shop. You are called to build. You are called to be holy to the Lord. Don't leak guard to the fool. It is simply standard wisdom.